0: Key members of the GOP field want to abolish the Department of Education. We'll discuss what that would mean for the nation's 55 million students. Then a showdown in Tennessee over gun control reveals a split within conservative circles. We'll head down there, at least metaphorically, to see what's going on and see if there's any prospect Of legislation in the wake of that tragedy in the spring and then finally we've got a record number of voicemails so we'll turn the floor over to you the listeners to tell us a little bit about what you felt about some segments from episodes past uh this is the lost debate a show for political eclectics hello everybody i'm Robbie gupta
1: and i'm ricky schlott
0: well ricky in 1642 Massachusetts, which was really just a colony at that time, passed the Old Deluder Satan Act. And they, they really they really went after it. Every township across Massachusetts, this is in the words of the bill, after the worth hath increased them to 50 households, shall forthwith point one of their own town to teach all such children, as shall resort to him to read and write, whose wages shall be paid either by the parents or masters of such children or by the inhabitants in general. So with that piece of legislation, Ricky, we've entered this experiment of federal control of education. And uh, that was on display at the GOP debate where multiple candidates have engaged in this time-honored tradition of debating whether the federal government and the government at all should be involved in our kids' education. Governor DeSantis, Vivek Ramaswamy, Doug Burgum, and Vice President Pence all said if they were elected, they would eliminate the federal Department of Education. This is a bit of a uh, a longstanding policy position of the Republican Party. It goes back to Ronald Reagan, who basically immediately upon the establishment of the modern Department of Education promised that he would get rid of it. In 1995, Newt Gingrich promised to get rid of it. There's been legislation in Congress to get rid of it. Trump has promised to get rid of it. Ricky, should we get rid of the U.S. Department of Education?
1: Well, firstly, I was very confused about what we were talking about in the beginning there, but that there was not yet a federal government <laughs> at that point in time, so I would not. Well, that say was that the that, government, the states. Yeah, federalist, that's not federal, but you know, that's not the federal government in the same way that a federal Department of Education is today. And at no point in the Constitution is there any sort of authority over education delegated to the federal government or to states or at all. Period. Necessarily, I think it's the constitutional read on that is probably more likely than not that it would be a state run issue. But you know, that's a very different thing. The the people of Plymouth saying, "Okay, we're going to basically just make our own local governance about." Well, I about, wasn't
0: I wasn't talking about the old Deluder Satan Act because I felt like that somehow means that we have to have a federal Department of Education. I was just saying that we've been debating this for a long time and. We, I think we can get to the constitutional stuff. I think even this Supreme Court believes that the federal government does have the authority to regulate. It's education.
1: not grounded in the Constitution. It's just not. Not I think is the nuance.
0: Well, I think like most things, the federal government does. It, it's dependent on the Commerce Clause. But okay, that's not what we're here to talk about. I think we're more here to talk about whether we should have a Department of Education. Yes. Not whether we can, because I think the debate of whether we can, at least, has been settled for the moment.
1: No, but whether we should, as implied by the Constitution, I think is a question that's relevant, not whether that rules out whether we can. However, you know, it only started in in 1979. It's not actually that old of a a relic of American history. Um, Education in its federal oversight used to be seen by the Department of Health, Education and Welfare. And now we use it for data and research on schools for um, prohibiting discrimination. And notably, one thing that I think is often missing from this conversation about the Department of Education because we think so much about K to 12 in that context is that it's distributing financial aid for education. And when you go into student loan debt, that's who your lender is. So that's something that I think is also quite relevant as we deal with our student loan crisis and the crisis of higher education. There's the role played here. I think Vivek is definitely leading the pack in terms of pushing other candidates to take a stance on something like this. It hasn't really been, even though there is a history of Gingrich and, and Reagan, there, there hasn't been a lot of talk about the Department of Education um, until this election cycle. I think he's pushing people to kind of get rough and tumble in this sense. He's said, I've heard him say it multiple times, that he wants to cut the head off of the snake. And he points to the funding, which I mean, I'll go to you first. What is what is your stance? Is this completely outlandish, like deregulation, or is there an off ramp for this centralized federal control over education?
0: I think you know, one one place to start is just how much the federal government spends relative to everybody else. Cause I think in most people's minds the federal government plays a dominant role. And I actually, as I'll get to, I actually do think it plays a dominant role, but not because of the amount of funding that they give out. So the federal government actually accounts for uh, fewer than 10% or less than 10% of total money spent on education. So 47% comes from state sources, 45% comes from local sources. So state and local continue to be the bulk of funding that goes to uh, education across this country. Now, where the federal government plays a huge role is in, in, of course, in student loans and higher education and all that, but putting that aside for a second and just focusing on the K-12 part of this, the federal government sends that money down to states and localities, but they attach strings to it. And those strings are sometimes bureaucratic hurdles, reporting hurdles, or uh, certain behaviors that they want to see. And uh, there was a great speech that John White, who at the time was the Louisiana Secretary of Education, we've had a chance to interview him back on this podcast, I think like a year or two ago, but back when he was Louisiana secretary of education, uh, he gave a speech in Washington DC in 2013, where he basically made an argument in the particulars about how hard it is to deal with just the weight of federal obligations when you're trying to run a state. And he said that they recently tallied the annual reports required for submission to the federal government of their local school systems, and found that there are over 100 annual reports due to the federal government. And they said that's not to mention 175 annual statewide reports that they also had to give, which he was arguing that they should start to cut down on. And essentially he was saying that he didn't have control over his own staff and that, you know, in certain cases, the majority of staffs in states and local governments are devoted to just compliance with the federal government, interaction with the federal government, dealing with mandates from the federal government. And he basically said, this is coming from a place of arrogance and saying like every little idea that comes from DC needs to then be directed down to states. And there's also a sense of arrogance that when the bureaucrats are deciding something, there's this sense that well, automatically like the crystal clear, perfect version of their idea gets implemented down at the school level. But we're often, there's so much static between idea and implementation that even if it is the right idea, it's not being carried out properly in the states and that there's a huge tax in terms of people's time, money, energy, confusion that these laws create. And so essentially what he was arguing for is not to abolish the Department of Education, if I understand White's position correctly, but to significantly cut down on the weight of mandates, requirements, reports, data requests that the federal government sends down. And that's where I am. I am not a abolish the department. Uh, although I don't think it would have the impact that some people think it would in terms of like people feeling the sky would fall. I don't think it would be like if they if they abolished the department and redistributed its functions, I don't think it would be an emergency, but I would like to see it smaller. I guess that's, that's where I come out on this.
1: Well, one of the largest things that we task the Department of Education with doing is collecting data and doing research on how schools are functioning, which I mean, effectively, you're saying remove or significantly pare back one of its primary functions. So, what other functions? I mean, I agree with you, but what other what functions do you think they need to stick around to be doing, if not that which we've asked them to do? Yeah, I would say streamline it.
0: Right. So, I you know we could spend for a while talking about like there's a thousand plus pages in Title 20, which is kind of the corpus of education policy in federal government. And we could, we could spend the rest of this year going through that and saying, like, what's redundant, what's necessary, et cetera. Like, I have no problem with the department collecting information. And actually, I, I love the fact that we collect national information. And actually, this gets to the question of the original Department of Education. So... This Department of Education was established in 1979, but actually in 1867, Andrew Johnson established the Department of Education. And shout out to Kevin Kosar, Politico Politico in 2015. He wrote a great article about this. This is where I got the old Deluder Satan Act of 1642 from. Uh, But he wrote this, this great piece about the genesis of the Department of Education. And this is a great read for anybody who cares about American history and education history in particular. And he talks about how this this movement called the Common School Movement, which was Horace Mann and a bunch of sort of progressive education reformers, progressive meaning a different thing back then, were pushing for a national set of standards for what it meant to be a school. And they wanted more like university educated people leading schools. Uh, And the sort of apex of their movement or the early apex of it was the creation of the Department of Education, which at the time was a four-person agency, which was really about collecting education statistics, but then also advocating nationally for certain education policies. But it was small and was headed by this guy who, his name was Henry Bernard. And he was an interesting guy, this guy. I had never heard of him before, but before he was 30 years old, he was a schoolmaster. So a school principal, he had served in the Connecticut legislature. He had passed a bill to establish the state board of education in Connecticut. Then he served on it. He persuaded the U.S. Census Office to include questions on education. And then right after 30, he established the American Journal of Education and the precursor to to the American Education Association. Then he became our nation's first commissioner of education. And he lasted all of one year, Ricky, because uh, there was a fight over Reconstruction happening at the time. Andrew Johnson, who was no fan of Reconstruction, uh, translation, he was a racist pro-slave president who, you know, basically... In my opinion, ruined a lot of the momentum around civil rights that we've been dealing with ever, you know, from this day. Johnson was skeptical of the Department of Education anyway. This guy Bernard went to Congress within a year trying to ask for more resources. They not only didn't give him more resources, they cut his pay and basically shoved him into the Department of Interior and he quit. Uh, but what was behind that, Ricky, which is relevant, is there was a Freedmen's Bureau at the time establishing schools for freed black slaves. And Uh, They were run by Christian missionaries, and there were mandates in Reconstruction that Southern states collect information and report on information about the the emancipated slaves attending school and the Johnsonites, the sort of pro-slavery forces did not like that requirement. They did not like having to report on what were happening to emancipated slaves. And so I think this is relevant, not because that's the justification today, but the data reporting was controversial back then. And it also gets to, I think, this question that we perennially been talking about on this podcast, which is our failure post-slavery to do right by the people coming out of slavery. And I think this is just one example of that.
1: Yes. But I don't think, and I obviously it goes without saying that I I agree with that sentiment, but I don't think that civil rights law just evaporates if you abolish the department of education and we have far more protections at this point in time. Not that everything is perfect, but I mean, I think in terms of actually empowering people and especially disadvantaged people, I agree with Vivek that there's, I mean, looking at an $80 billion budget for the department of education, that cutting that down significantly and reallocating that money towards families, which is something that he says he wants to do, could actually be very effective. I mean, if you actually factor that out based on how that budget would distribute per every single child who's in the public school system right now from pre-K through 12, $1,600 per student in public school. So that's a significant potential voucher. I mean, but I also, I mean, I would say, I agree with the, the thrust of his argument. I think that a lot of the functions of the Department of Education could be reallocated and localized, uh, especially considering our performance in basically every major educational metric across the globe is paling in comparison to countries that in other areas we are leaps and bounds ahead of. So I have no problem with more federalist sort of decentralized experimentation and maybe some trial and error because we're having more errors than successes at this point in time. So I'd rather experiment a little bit more. But if I were to retort directly to Vivek, I, I think pulling the plug entirely can potentially as, and you know, he's also Mr. abolished the FBI and abolished a bunch of other things. And I think there's a potentially more measured way to go about this. And if I were advising him or anyone else who has these more radical deregulatory instincts that I agree with, I would say one thing that I would definitely make in my first year of office, make every major federal agency do is rewrite their budget and, t- and tell them, okay, what would you do? How would you change your your functioning if I were to tell you that you were required to operate at 75% of your original budget? And then ask them again, okay, now, now at 50% and then again at 25% and see what things fall off first. Because I think that's very telling. And there's potentially a significantly pared down role that most federal agencies can play without being entirely abolished. So I think
0: a couple of things on that. I think one is like, you were talking about like, well, our performance internationally isn't on par, but actually if you look at the PISA rankings, which is like usually like the internationally like accepted among education experts, best system for, you know, even attempting to compare us to other countries, a lot of the countries that dominate like Singapore are more like top down than we are. And even like, you know, if, if you were to say, well, Singapore is a different form of government, even comparing us to the UK, which outperforms us, it's a way more federally controlled or in their case, centrally controlled system than us. I'm not a fan of fe- central control, but I don't think that's well, like, also very different. Like, federalism is going to well. necessarily lead to. Yeah. But I think like if the point is like, I would love to know like the, the link between federalism and results there, because like, although I like, like John White, I agree that there's way too much required of schools. I'm not sure I would sell that on this promise that Uh, that automatically is going to lead to greater quality in schools, especially, you know, greater student achievement.
1: Well, I think it's hard to compare like Estonia, for example, which outstrips us on some PISA measures. That's a very geographically different country that's considerably smaller. Their population is much more similar to one another and 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 we have a far more stratified economic and racial population and and totally different geographical areas and completely different challenges and a private school system and a public school system. And so the reason that I'm saying that is I think I think there's a necessity for experimentation in terms of what is going awry with American education. A federalist system better allows for experimentation than just accepting whatever ill-fitted top-down measure we're applying right now, which could be very different in different areas. I mean, we have an enormous country. We have an enormously diverse country. Every school district has a considerably different challenge from even the one right next door to it. And I think localizing and allowing for more trial and error is a long-term benefit for our education system and could actually yield innovation, whereas I don't think that we're, we're seeing that as much when we centralize control.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, on the, on the question of the the size of the Department of Education, again, like I'm directionally sympathetic on some of the things that people who are critics of the Department of Education will say. Uh, but I do think people exaggerate the size of the Department of Education. It's actually the last time I checked the smallest of the cabinet agencies. So I think like, you know, anybody could point to any federal but program. But $80 billion, billion like,
1: dollars is quite a lot.
0: Yeah, but we have 300 million plus people, you know, so it's like easy to say that something's a big program or, you know, but how much is that per person in this country? It's it's fewer than 10% of the money well, we spend it's on education.
1: $1,600 per student that's in public schools. So that's, you know, considerably less than the 300 million figure, but.
0: Cutting through all of that, like, I think people exaggerate the size of it. I do think it could still be smaller, but I do think like the way people sometimes talk about this is is lacking in details. It's like, okay, well, what would you want to cut? Would you want to cut idea funding, special education funding? Let's game that out. Like anybody who runs a school will tell you that that's actually an area that makes a huge difference as does title one. Those are like the two biggest programs in K-12 from what I see it. And these are programs that basically, you know, people can talk about, you know, the 1860s, they could talk about 1979, but I think if you're watching closely the history of education, the 1960s were truly the birth of the modern federal role in education because that's where Title I came from. And that's where you started to see these like entitlement funds for education. And I think like people can both be critics of the the way that that money is spent. A lot of those reports that John White talks about, for instance, are, some, are linked to a lot of this money, but also be a little bit careful about saying, all right, well, let's cut it and reallocate it to the states. Because where I am right now is I could imagine a world where states make up for some of this, but there are real vulnerable student populations at issue. So if you're to say well, we're going to cut Title 1 or we're going to cut IDEA, which a lot of these people aren't that specific. So we have to kind of do the work for them. But like let's say you cut Title 1, which is for poor kids, or you cut IDEA funding, which I think would have an even more like dramatic effect because there are kids who would not get anything close to the kind of education they have today, if not for those funds, then what replaces it? So we could say the states replace it, but how do you ensure that happens? And are you willing to be okay with it not happening in certain states? Because you probably can guarantee that in 50 states across the country, some states are not going to do that well. And if you're a true believer in federalism, then you need to own the messiness of those results. I don't mean you necessarily. I mean like the people proposing to abolish the department because abolish is a very strong word, you know, <laughs> like that's why I'm like, I'm in the, let's go through this and bean count one program at a time, compare regulations, find redundancy, find dumb reports. And, and I, and I'm, I'm cool also with setting targets. Like if there's a hundred t- reports, let's get that down to 10 you know, like, why can't there be fewer? Why can't we just make it one report that every school fills out that is like adaptable, right? Like, why can't we make the user experience better? I don't know.
1: And that's part of why I feel like I would implement the sort of thing of saying, okay, tell me how you would restructure your department if you have 75% of the funding that you currently do, because you defer to the people that are experts and are in, in charge of that department. And I think it would be especially telling to hear what they have to say about what is the least critical aspect of what they're doing. Um, like also, I mean, I don't think there's a lot of disagreement between us on, on this point because it's definitely one of those things where I can definitely get end the Fed vibes pretty quickly if I radicalize myself down the like blockchain rabbit hole for too long. And I'm very much like I share the same instincts as like the abolish this and that. And these agencies are totally corrupt and they're not necessary. But I think. It's easy to look back with 2020 hindsight and say like, oh, I wish we never. And I certainly would say this about a lot of governmental overreach that I see today. Like, I wish we never did this in the first place. However, we did do it. And we've now had decades of the legacy of that being in place and and more localized governments and, and school boards and stuff expecting and being able to defer certain responsibilities to these larger programs and growing in totally separate different ways with that dependency in mind and i think that it's really easy to sometimes jump into the the bandwagon of saying like yeah we should never have done that in the first place so let's get rid of it entirely without realizing just how inextricably linked a lot of bureaucratic large agencies are in a lot of our more localized governments and and organizations even if we don't want that to be the case and even if we want to unwind that i think Like I definitely share your sense that there needs to be a degree of caution and just how abruptly we abolish things and it needs to be done with, if it is done or just significantly paring things down needs to be done with a lot more mindfulness and and less hostility and working with people in departments to figure out what exactly they're doing that's so essential and how we can promote that and cut through the noise.
0: Yeah, I also think that there's, the, the natural extension, and you know, you're talking about Vivek, but actually, you know, Trump has been talking about this for a while, and as DeSantis has been talking about abolishing the Department of Education for a while too. It's interesting that there, this is one area where there definitely seems to be, I wouldn't say full unity, but a lot of consensus on the right wing. There, I think there was something like 200 votes for Thomas Massey's bill to undo the Department of Education. So, like, this is this is a real policy, and Part of what I would love to see is people to really get into the weeds of the details. You know, there's one guy, at Jonathan Butcher, this guy at Heritage Foundation, and I don't want to give him too much credit, but he does get into like, hey, like, what would it look like if we did undo the Department of Education? So he gets into things like civil rights complaints are are a function of of the Department of Education. And he says, well, you could send those to the DOJ on student loans. He would basically just eliminate them. And he talks about saving the money from the Office of Special Education and Rehabilitative Services, which I think is a whole can of worms that I think has not been fully developed. But I think when I look at that, there's not a lot of polling on this, but the polling I could find, uh, and, and I, I, I want to be careful how I describe this because I do think that the double-edged sword here is I think the public does think the Department of Education does more than it does. But when you ask the public... 2018, which was the last time I think Pew asked this, 53% of American adults held a favorable view of the Department of Education compared to 42% unfavorable. The exact question of whether to undo the Department of Education, the last poll I could find on this was actually from Reason and found that 34% of adults supported eliminating or consolidating the department, 61% wanted to keep it. I mean, that was more than a decade ago though, so I don't know what to make of that data. But I suspect if you gave this poll again today, it probably would have shifted somewhat towards the less favorable but i still you, you still probably find majorities of people who support it in part because of some of those big block entitlement grants but i think also because i don't think people necessarily know that only 10% of the funding that goes to schools comes from the department of education
1: yeah i would also say that like probably 10% of people could actually meaningfully define what exactly they do
0: yeah i i would imagine yeah i would be surprised if it was even that much yeah probably uh, not. so my prediction is this will definitely be something that if there is a debate in the general election, <laughs> then uh, this is something we could expect people to be debating because like Biden's position on this is clear. He wants to grow the Department of Education. Trump's position is clear. He wants to get rid of the Department of Education. And people go down the rabbit hole, read this article uh, from Kevin Kosar. Read uh, I can't find the exact video of John White's speech down in DC in 2013, but there are a few write-ups of it and we did an interview with him. So we'll link to all of that. He, I think he gives a really strong take and, and White, who I think is a self-described progressive, even though at the time he was a he was reporting to a Republican governor and Bobby Jindal, I think had some cautionary notes for reformers, who I know there are a lot of education reformers who live to this podcast. And he talked about how there's an arrogance of reformers. And I think he, he put it really well. And he talked about the best way, this is, I'm quoting him, John White, the best way is to trust educators to do their jobs, hold them accountable, but trust them. No more strings, no more distractions, no more condescension, no more reports, no more white noise. We reformers must create conditions of trust if our ideas are to work. Uh, he warned against the growing tide of populism, which definitely seemed uh, to have come to fruition. And he also talked about how um, there wasn't a broad enough coalition for sports, or he talked about how every middle-class parent, every family in rural America, families all across the spectrum should understand the clear benefits of like reform as he described it back then. I think it was a really good speech.
1: So one other thing that Vivek has been kind of uniquely at the helm of is agitating for Tennessee and investigators in Tennessee to release the manifesto of a shooter who in March shot up and killed students at a Christian school who um, was a transgender individual. And he feels as though that manifesto is within the public interest. I think it's been notably not released. Um, But that shooting has also caused a great deal of uproar in Tennessee around a lack of gun control in the state. And there was a special session last week of local lawmakers to address that shooting, um, weighing a few bills. But the Senate ended up adjourning with no promise to take up any of the House's proposals, um, which basically guarantees that there will be no significant or groundbreaking gun control. And this is part of like an ongoing standoff between the governor, who's a Republican, Bill Lee, who has asked local lawmakers to take up the issue and has said that he wants to stop short of true red flag laws, but um, wants to sure up ways that Tennessee is keeping guns from those deemed a threat. No Republican sponsored the bill that he championed. However, I think that there's a lot of grassroots support for gun control in a way that you actually, in a conversation that we had brought up a parallel between the moms for liberty kind of parental rights Activism and parents now in Tennessee who. They were even attempting to ban people in the public forum from holding signs. Um, A judge blocked that ruling. And when the Senate adjourned last week, there was jeers and booing from advocates in the galleries, many of whom were mothers and parents who felt very strongly about this legislation. And so it's an interesting kind of flip side of the coin of parents agitating for what they feel are their rights in schools and and their their children's rights to, to safety in the school system.
0: Yeah, my understanding of this question of the just to to start off with what you started off with, this manifesto is that the local law enforcement who holds the power over this, from what I understand, has said they will release the manifesto as soon as they close the investigation, which they have not done yet. And this my understanding is that this is in keeping with a lot of these shootings. Like Columbine, for instance, there was a legal battle over whether they do, to release that manifesto as well. I have questions about whether you know, and this is a whole other can of worms, like like whether this is an easy target for somebody like Vivek, who I think is getting too much airtime in this episode, uh, is like, instead of talking about the obvious problem, which is uh, gun violence in schools, we talk about the niche part of this, which is the trans identity of the shooter. And this was a trans sh- shooter, but what is like common of all school shootings is the gun <laughs> and potentially mental illness, potentially other school safety debates that Tennessee has been having around like, you know, shoring up the security of schools, et cetera. And even debates that I might not be on the same page as somebody with like whether to arm officers, whatever. at least that's like sui generis, right? Like what, what I think is, what I think is fascinating is like pick the one thing that makes this different and try to make it about that. And I'm like, well, Yeah, and I'm sure there there have been other trans shooters. I'm not sure that's an epidemic, but this manifesto will get released eventually. I have no idea what it will show, but what we don't know is whether there will be meaningful gun reform in Tennessee. And, you know, somebody who ran a school in that very city, know a lot of the people who've been involved in this covenant debate who are conservatives, who are asking for a lot of these parents who went to the, the legislature are conservatives asking their conservative legislators to do something meaningful on red flag laws with something like two-thirds of Tennessee voters support according to Vanderbilt's poll, or three-quarters of registered voters support some kind of uh, red flag law. Not only did the legislature ignore them, but they censored them. So they passed a, a rule, it seems specific to this debate, that censored the posters that parents could bring into the galleries. I know one of these parents who was in there not only that, uh, but then the parents started writing on themselves, and they wound up kicking some of these parents out of the chamber for having those posters and breaking the rule. Uh, and, and this obviously is the same and legislation. The judge did
1: overrule that in the end, but obviously that's unacceptable. I completely agree.
0: And this is a governor who personally knew two of the victims. So all I say is, like, I think like this is this is a supermajority, uh, a gerrymandered majority. And one that has been kind of bullying, like, I'm I'm no fan of a lot of the Democratic members of the state house and Senate, but they've been bullying them. They, you know, kicked some of them out of their office uh, back in the spring. And now they're starting to bully their own constituents and their own conservative constituents. And I think this is, this is going to go beyond gun rights in Tennessee, from what I understand. And like, this is, this might be a Rubicon that they've crossed, that is gonna come back to haunt
1: some of these members
0: of this legislature.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that there's a dismissal of bipartisan voter will. And this is one of those issues that there is so much common ground and common sense in terms of just like American consensus, regardless of political affiliation on certain aspects of of gun control. I would put abortion up there. Like it's there's such heated debates that we end up like our legislators end up just screaming past each other, but there's a ton of common ground. And that's one of the things that no labels that political organization that is potentially going to run a like third party line ticket candidate. Those are both is- issues where they did an extensive amount of public polling and found that across all demographics, all geographic areas, those two issues as divisive as they seem in terms of the the national discourse, there's actually a lot more common sense moderate individuals just on the the citizen level. 82% of residents supported the executive order shoring up um, basically something short of a true red flag law. Um, and then, as you mentioned, three and four support a true red flag law. I would say you can't entirely say that no progress has been made. There has been on on some more on, on smaller levels. There have been some changes passed. Um, they've incentivized safe gun storage they've required an annual human trafficking report, which was a little tangential to me, but they've also in Tennessee firmed up some background check changes, um, set aside more money for uh, school resource officers and provided bonuses for behavioral professionals, which all seem related, but not directly correlated necessarily. But I mean, I I definitely think this is one of those growing divide sort of issues where it just feels like the party system and the lack of just common sense, cool headed debate, really divides people unnecessarily. And I I agree that the spectacle of this, um, certainly will come back to bite conservatives in the end. Um, I I mean I think there's tons of issues on on either side where the lack of moderates and independents that end up just based on the primary system electing you know that you have partisans voting for partisan players and then those are who end up facing off in the general election. I think that it really shuts out a lot of the common sense consensus that we could be having on the state level, on the congressional level, and even on the presidential level, just by and large. So I think that this, watching this unfold is um, very much like a kind of metaphor for largely where we are as a country and how we, we fail those who genuinely want to find some sort of consensus and uh, compromise.
0: Yeah, I think this is, This is also an area that has been sneaking up in the polls. So in the midterm elections, there was this period of time when the exit polls, I don't know if you're trafficking exit poll data, but I was getting all these exit polls where people were, you know, a lot of my conservative friends were like gleefully like, whoa, crime is ranking really high. And if you remember, there were a lot of ads about crime and all that. Like people are saying that crime was a really important issue to them Mm -hmm. as they went to the polls. And then I think what a lot of analyses post-election, I don't want to say concluded, but seemed to suggest is, yes, voters were animated by crime, but actually the meaning they put to that was a little bit different depending on who the voter was. And there were a lot of voters who included stuff like school shootings as a crime issue, and then also shootings generally, and weren't necessarily attributing the rise in crime to just bad progressive policy. They were also looking for things like sensible gun control. And the The history of this is really depressing. I mean, I guess this is my history episode. But like abortion, gun control was a bipartisan issue basically around the time I was born, probably like a decade earlier. And you know, there were people very conservative members of the Supreme Court, like Chief Justice Warren Berger, who said that there was no personal right to firearms in this country. Actually it wasn't until very very recently that the Supreme Court even recognized that personal right and I wrote about this a while ago about how there was this interpretation for most of our nation's history of the 2nd amendment which viewed it as the right of a militia not as an individual right and that was pretty much the consensus up until the birth of the modern NRA like the NRA used to be just a sporting and hunting organization that actually was for gun control and then in part because of the rise of immigration or new immigration that happened in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, it kind of had a hostile takeover or takeover. I don't need to call it hostile. Uh, and it started advocating against gun control and became more of a political player than a sportsman organization. And then they also started to fund scholarship. And so, I don't know. like, And now we're at this point now where you can't get anything passed through a red legislature of meaning. And I think it's going to have to be a debate that plays out within red circles, like in Tennessee, like it, it, it Democrats are irrelevant in Tennessee. There's they, a super majority. There's nothing they can do to change this policy.
1: Yeah. I mean, I also think part of talking past each other is like going to the point of where we're saying, like, is there even a right to having guns? Like that's just not even based on the precedent in this country and based on our culture and based on every legislature basically across the country. That's not something that I think is really up for debate. Nor is.
0: Well, hold on on that one. Well, you just said in the last segment, like, is there constitutional authority for Department of Education? I don't think that's talking past each other. I think it's an important constitutional question, right? It's one that has been settled by this Supreme Court. There's actually way more support for what I'm saying, because the Supreme Court, I think it, was, it wasn't until uh, it was 2008, I think it was the first time that this Supreme Court even recognized a personal right. To the Second I'm Amendment. I'm talking
1: about actionability. I'm not saying the Constitution is irrelevant. I'm talking about actionability. Like, pairing back the Department of Education is far more possible and, and palatable to a much larger group of people versus a large plurality of Americans who feel very strongly in favor of the Second Amendment. Like, I'm just saying, in terms of practicality and actually getting together and having the common sense kind of conversations, like we're going to have to put past, like those who want absolutely no regulations at all whatsoever are going to have to put that past themselves or quarantine themselves, as well as those who are going to fundamentally question that, right? Just because it's not on the table. Like that's just, I mean, I, I'm not saying it's not a question to ask philosophically, but in terms of actual legislation, that's not on the table for debate. And that's one way that I think we're just going to start talking right past each other
0: again, but. Well, at at the risk of talking past I'm a believer, you know, I'm a, I'm a believer in the constitution, Ricky, the constitution is, this is what it says, a well-regulated militia being necessary for the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Now that's an interesting debate. And for most of our history, we've read into that, that the first part is not, is there for a reason, a well-regulated militia. And if you look at the history of it, in the original version of this that went through the house, it talked about conscientious objectors, which gets to the state of mind of the people who pass this, which is they're talking about militias. They're talking about the right of the group, which is what the Supreme Court, including Chief Justice Warren Berger, believed up until recently.
1: Okay, Ravi, but if we're talking about what's happening in Tennessee, like this is not a conversation that's going to actually meaningfully impact gun reform and like the common sense centrist, like red flag sort of laws that could actually get passed. Like that's just, this, this is not gonna inform that. And I feel like if anything, just cause more gridlock in terms of like, okay, what do we do to actually solve this problem?
0: Well, I think it gets to the extremism.
1: That Well, that is extremism, at least in the scheme of, I mean, in terms of the contours of the actual debate, that is definitionally an extreme to say that there is potentially not even a Second Amendment right to to bear arms. In terms of the, the contours of American society, that is an extreme.
0: Where I am on this one is the relevance of what I just said is to point out that it's important for people to understand, just like what I was saying, it's important for people to understand how small the Department of Education really is. It's important for me to, and my therefore isn't, we should get rid of it. My point is, it's smaller than people think it is. My point on gun control is, I don't think it's practical that you're going to get rid of this. the current interpretation of the Second Amendment as a personal right, or at least allow for guns. First of all, you can have a you can get rid of the right. This is what people have been telling me on abortion on the right forever. You can get rid of the right to something while also still allowing it uh which we could put aside, but my point about talking about the second amendment is that this is an extreme position that the Tennessee legislature has. It's it's extreme in modern society, their own polling s- shows this, but it's also extreme historically and it's important like there's all this money that's been pumped for decades into scholarship about the history of the second amendment, the history of guns in this country. And it's important when this comes up to talk about the facts, which is like the history here is relevant. Like this is a historically and uh, contemporarily extreme set of positions that are being forced down the American public. And all, no, I'm not here to get rid of all guns, but I do want to keep reminding people that this was a political agenda that has rewritten people's expectations about how much gun violence they should be able to accept. And yeah, I'm I'm not gonna stop talking about the history because that history was, there's been an organized effort to erase it. And I think people should keep it in mind.
1: And my only retort to that is the Overton window of actual meaningful reform does not necessarily involve that position. Should we listen to some voicemails? Hey, this is Ricky. You've reached the last debate. If you have some feedback for us, leave it after the time.
2: Hi, my name is Rachel. I live in Pennsylvania and I'm a mother of two. I was just listening to your segment about the child care crisis in America, which I've seen coming from a mile away. And since you guys don't have kids, I thought I would just tell you some of the things that I know about the system. We've done every possible childcare option you could do. We've had a nanny. Uh, we've had a pod school where we paid teachers to watch a group of kids during the pandemic year. We've been in state subsidized daycare. We've been in private daycare that was like hippy dippy called a play school. We've done everything. So the problem is you could go back to the women's lib movement. And in the 70s and 80s, all these women went back to work. And we never redesigned society around that massive cultural shift. And this is the problem. So someone decided, we decided, women should go to work. Great. Where do the kids go? The women have been taking care of the kids for millennia for basically free. And now suddenly there's this gap where someone needs to take care of them and that person needs to pay a living wage. So the problem right now is that the daycares cost too much for the parents, and the workers don't get paid very much at all. I mean, they're probably getting paid fairly above minimum wage. So it is not like these child care agencies are taking advantage of anybody. They're not. Like, no one is happy with the system whatsoever. So I agree with Robbie that the government it's the government's place, basically. If you want the women in the workforce, someone's going to have to come up with a solution for taking care of the children. And I also agree with Ricky that the parents should have some choice in – what type of school they can, you know, care their kids are in. So that would be some sort of voucher system akin to the whole voucher school movement.
0: Well, Rachel, thank you so much. It sounds like you've been going through a lot trying to find your, you know, a sensible solution here. Ricky, what do you think here? uh, You know, as a noted men's rights advocate, what do we do with this movement of, we've now let women work. What are we going to do now? Who's going to watch the kids?
1: Oh, what a straw man that is. <laughs> um, but no, truly, I think there's a, a a problem where I don't think this was like an intentional conspiracy, but what kind of happened was as soon as you have two parents earning money in a household, it becomes possible for employers to to pay people less than a living wage that would support an entire family because there's an expectation that there's a significant plurality of, of workers who have two income households and and education costs go up and, and childcare costs go up. And it's not that there shouldn't be women in the household in the first place, but I do think that there should be a, a meaningful conversation. And like, I mean, Blake Masters is like not the best example of someone who's brought this up, but like a meaningful conversation about why we have a system in which a single stream of income is no longer sustainable for a lot of families to raise children on and then therefore requires people to invest it or pay into the childcare system. Or I mean, even just like a, I mean, I I just, I think there's a, a meta imbalance that we just have in our society of childcare being able to raise so much because it's now a necessity in order to have a family in this country. And I believe that women should be free to work or not work or stay at home or do whatever they, they please. But I do think that that is like a major issue. And it's one of those pendulum swing things where I don't think our society has fully realized how radical birth control options are and how there's going to be growing pains for generations to come. And I think this is one of them. And the childcare industry exploding is a, a certainly a consequence, at least in large part, due to that changing reality.
0: Yeah. I think one of the reasons why I, like, we did that segment, but also you know, why I, I kind of have lost a little sleep over this issue in particular is that there are certain things that you could imagine technology playing a major role in solving. Child care is harder, not to say there isn't a role for technology to make things more efficient, but it is the kind of thing that requires people to do the work like in, in the end. And I think in a world where, in a current environment of such low unemployment and low, or at least a desire for lower immigration, I'm not sure there actually is, I'm left wondering what, Where the solution is going to come on this kind of stuff it's going to it's not to say it's not going to come but it'll have to come from an unlikely place so if you've got ideas send them in
3: hey andrew from pittsburgh area one of the things uh ricky was talking about on the last episode or one of the episodes was the threshold for the age group that shouldn't be taught sex ed and that's something that you know i struggle with a little bit because When you look at, you know, how predators are able to be predators, a lot of times it's because these children don't necessarily understand that what these people are doing is wrong. So when you say, oh, there needs to be a threshold for an age, well, as soon as a child can understand that they shouldn't or don't want to be punched in a certain area is the age that you should be taught this sex education. Because, once again, that's how predators are able to be predators is because these children don't necessarily understand when to say no or how to say no or what is a reasonable time to say no. So like I said, like, I understand and like the idea that children at X age shouldn't be taught sexual education. But at the same time, I think all children need to be taught some type of sexual education just to make sure that these predators aren't able to be predators. All
0: right, Ricky, what say you?
1: Yeah, I definitely think, I mean, there's a difference between Instruction on gender ideology and sexuality and masturbation and stuff that was just incontrovertibly inappropriate for, I think, a certain demographic of children. And then also just like personal safety and and an education about boundaries and predatory behavior, which I think you can hold separately. And I also think can and should be a part of teaching. I mean, I even think that like self defense and stranger danger stuff, like this all falls together. And I do think that that should be taught more to kids younger without causing paranoia in them and making them feel that the world is a, is a, always an awful place out that's out to get them but yeah i mean I, I and even like online education i i don't disagree with this i think that there's just a difference between like certain things where it becomes more subjective and parents should be the people to decide whether or not that's a a topic or concept that's appropriate for their children but i think any parent who would say oh i don't want my child to know or to be told about how to defend themselves against, like, clearly predatory, pedophilic behavior. Like, I don't... If there's a parent who's against that, I, they're a problem.
4: Hi, uh, long-time listener. Love your show, guys. I think I just wanted to discuss a little bit about the uh, sexual education debate you guys were having. As with most things when it comes to moms of liberty, they end up taking up most of the space in the room. But I think they missed an opportunity in that debate to really discuss the merits of sexual education in America, specifically on the point of consent. This is actually a topic that's been widely argued, and it's something that people want to bring to the forefront, especially when you talk about states where most of sexual education has been given back to the parents and has been removed from schools and they have limited resources and are only limited to things like your body is changing and those kinds of concepts. Consent is really a middle ground for teaching children about safe and healthy relationships, how to identify coercion, and also how to take autonomy for oneself to make decisions around sex. I think we often do a disservice when we consider children as sexless beings, when we know that teenagers and young adults are most sexually active um, around those ages. and that they need language and they need concepts to be explained and understood to make much better decisions for themselves in the future.
0: Yeah, I I agree with most of that. I think, yeah, and I think if I remember that's discussion correctly, we were just trying to explain the Moms for Liberty woman's or the breakout session's position, not defend the position. Uh, But I agree with the caller that consent is very important. And I like the framing of it as a middle ground. I think that's really interesting.
1: It also relates to the first caller as well. I think that's all kind of within the same umbrella of being able to like parse out consent and predatory behavior and and self-protection versus just stuff that is still open for debate in terms of its cultural and social relevance.
0: One last voicemail. Uh, this one, we have so much interest on the question of legalization and the question around drugs generally. It makes me wonder whether we want to do... Um, few deeper dives. Uh, But this is from Steve, who's a physician in the Northeast. Hi,
5: my name is Steve. I'm a physician in a major Northeastern city. I work with a lot of patients with opioid use disorder. And having listened to a number um, of the podcasts related to this issue, one of the things that I just wanted to mention in response to Ricky, um, uh, some of her comments have largely been around sort of the inability for some of these patients to really help themselves or or, or really function, you know, people who use heroin not being able to function in the world. And most of my patients in the outpatient setting are actually very functional people. They have jobs, they have lives, they have to provide care for their families and their children while at the same time struggling with this, you know, issues that we are working to get them through. And so I, I would just encourage in the future that we make sure to consider that, that sort of caricature of the person in the street that can't do anything. I think that represents a very small portion of individuals who use drugs, and I don't know that talking about it just related to those individuals is all that helpful. The second thing would just be that it's sometimes hard to listen to the debate about all of the drug use in the street, while those same people are very much against the supervised use facilities that would do exactly what they're uh, talking about doing, which would remove the drug use from the street and put it into a place. That would be more controlled, safer, be able to dispose of paraphernalia and things like that.
1: Yeah, I have to say this is something that like, I completely agree with um, him taking issue with my, my characterization of that. And I, I think I oversimplified in the sense where I'm thinking, you know, when we had this conversation about like Eric Adams moving to make it so that police officers could remove someone off the street without criminal cause or about drug legalization and decriminalization, there's definitely a conversation that we're having that I think I should have been more explicit about, about those who are having run-ins with the law, not people who slip into drug abuse and are, are going to doctors and therapy and looking and seeking for help. But those who are, who are on the streets or who do have run-ins with the police or who are a danger to themselves or to others. And I think that that is basically when we have this debate, those are the people that we're, we're talking about by and large but that's an important nuance to say that there is another population of people who are attempting to help themselves who who are going into rehab facilities who do have family support and that allows them to explore those options and that's definitely a separate um, and distinct population. And I'm certainly, when I'm talking about like decriminalization and stuff, I'm not talking about like going after people like that and saying, or criminalizing drugs, like not going into hospitals and saying, oh, you used a drug and so therefore you should be put in jail. I'm saying those who end up, who are in the position and in, in dire straits enough to end up having encounters with the law or or living on the streets are, are a different conversation, but not a completely unrelated one.
0: Well, Love the voicemails. Keep sending those in 321-200-0570. Thank you everyone for listening. Make sure to get out there and rate, review and subscribe. Um, Those five-star reviews matter a lot to us. Uh, We'll be back with an episode on Thursday. Have a good week, everybody.